Good morning, everyone. Is it cold enough out there for you today? Let's start with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us, and we pray that your spirit will be with us and lighten us. Fill us with your love and truth today, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 12 today in our quarterly The Atonement and the Cross of Christ, and our title of our lesson today is entitled, United to Christ. And somebody read the the memory text for us, please. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. What do you think this means, this phrase, to be in Christ? You've heard it before, haven't you? What does it mean to be in Christ? Any thoughts? A new heart, a new way of looking at things. Let's see if this uh, text sheds any light on it. John 17, 20 through 23. Jesus is praying to his Father uh, right before his crucifixion, his final prayer that we have recorded. It says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you, have ga- you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, does that text, does that passage give us any insight as to maybe what Paul's talking about when he says, if anyone is in Christ... Was Paul and Christ talking about the same thing in these two passages? Or is it something completely different? Or are they shedding light on each other? Same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what does it mean? Wouldn't the key word be unity? Yes. Okay, do you notice how when Christ prays, I pray they'll be in, uh, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us, that we may have this unity, maybe one? Do you notice how the in... As having a unity, a unifying, a wanting, at wanting, a toning? Yes. It also lends credence to the idea that um, to be in Christ is also to be in God. And the two aren't separate, distinct beings with separate, distinct ways of looking at humanity. Oh, I like that. Being in Christ. In- God was in Christ, reconciling man to himself. Yes, I. Christ says, I in them, you in me. And it also says... May they also be in us, in us, in Christ, in the Father. So, does in Christ then mean the following? In unity with him. In union of mind, method, principle, motive. In harmony of values, morals, ethics. In oneness of desire, longings, drives. In union of loving others more than self, being a new creation via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is that what it means to be in Christ? Yeah. Have you heard other ideas about what in Christ might mean? You're under his protection. Uh, say that louder. Under his blood. And what is it, what is it the typical in Christ motif? Have you heard of the in Christ motif? Have you heard that phrase? The in Christ motif is uh, used in Christian literature and Christian writing and is often used in a forensic way. 
that we are in Christ legally, that he is our legal representative and he paid the price. And when the Father looks at us, those who have claimed the blood are considered to be in Christ in a legal way, in a declarative way. Do you think that's what Christ was talking about in his prayer in John 17? No, No, it's a real genuine union of heart, union of mind. Think about uh, the metaphor we have in Genesis of marriage. The two shall be one. They're in union. They're, they're in, in oneness. That's what it's talking about. Other Bible metaphors then of this phrase now. So we're in Christ, and it talks about if anyone is in Christ, he is something. If you're in Christ, you're something. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. You're, you're new. You're regenerate. Any other Bible metaphors that shed light on this new creature concept? What exactly refers to the church as its bride? Okay, the bride, which is addressed in? White, okay, so the pure, the renewing, and you said, the oh, the wine skins. Remember the remember the parable of the wine skins. You can't put new wine in old skins because it can't handle it. New truth can't come to an unregenerate heart. You have to have a new heart, a new mind, in order to handle the new truth. You have to be patching an old garment, or patching an old garment doesn't work. Exactly right. Um, how about First uh, Corinthians two sixteen? Having the mind of Christ would that be the same thought? Or Romans 2.29, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Or what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. again. Is that the same thing as being a new creature? Yes. Hebrews 8.10, what's the new covenant? Is that the same thing that Paul's talking about, that when we're in Christ, we're a new creature, we have the law written on the heart and mind. It's no longer I that live, but... You see, it's all through the Bible. This isn't an isolated idea. But a powerful one I want to share with you, because this has, well, it just has so much more information in it. I want you to hear this passage from Ezekiel and, and think through what God is saying to, to the children of Israel, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Now, what's going on here? What's he saying the Israelites have done? Misrepresented him. Misrepresented God where they've gone. Is this to the Israelites only, or is this talking to Christians today? Have Christians today misrepresented God where we have gone? Everywhere. Think it through. In much of the world, do you know what a Christian is thought to be? Well, in the Muslim world, when they think of Christian, you know what they think of? The Crusades, the coercive. Well, they think of certainly the Crusades and the violence and the use of violence, no question. But they think of somebody who eats pork, somebody who drinks alcohol, and somebody who enjoys the worldly entertainments. That's a Christian. Hmm. And so when you as an Adventist meet a Muslim and you tell them you don't eat pork and you don't drink alcohol and you don't you know, engage in the worldly activities, well, they go, you're not a Christian. <laughs> See, Christians have profaned the name of the Lord, just as the Jews were doing. Okay, So notice his name has been profaned. Verse 23, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign. Now get this. When I show myself holy through you, 
before their eyes. What does that mean? He's going to show himself holy through you before their eyes. How does the Lord do that? What's he talking about here? We've profaned his name. We've gone out as Christians. We've misrepresented. We've lived lives that are no different than, than the, those who value the worldly principles as Christians. That's what the Jews are doing. But it says he's going to show himself holy through us. Is that talking about what our passage is today? When you're actually in Christ, you're a new creature. Well, let me give a, an aside. You remember several years ago, there was a shooting in an Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. Do you remember the shooting? Okay. The man goes in at 10 o'clock in the morning, sends out uh, the three adult ladies, infant, and all the boys, and leaves 10 little girls in the schoolroom with them, barricades himself in and ties them up. The police arrive on the scene, and as the police arrive, he becomes agitated. He, he, he escalates. And when it becomes obvious that he is going to begin harming these little girls, 13-year-old, now look at this, 13-year-old Marion Fisher stands up and says, shoot me first and let the other ones loose. Shoot me and let the other ones live. If you have to shoot somebody, I'll give you my life. He shot and killed her. No sooner had she hit the ground than her 11-year-old sister, Barbie, stood up and said, shoot me next and let the other ones go. She was shot five times and she survived. Do you think God's name was being shown through them? This was told all over the world. And in the aftermath of this, the Amish people had a fundraiser for the family of the man who shot and killed five of their girls. Was the Lord's name being shown to be holy through these people? Yes. Yes, this is what it's talking about. Yes. Um, I've lived in that part of the world. And uh, this is not unusual. In the paper, just probably this never made national news, but there was a young teenage boy who was drunk one morning with friends and hijinks and saw a buggy and said, let's just ram this buggy. And the man who was in the buggy early in the morning was paralyzed, permanently paralyzed. He was the father of a number of children. And at the trial, the family pled for mercy for this, this young boy. And um, because of their impassioned plea that he be uh, given community service and help and allowed to um, make restitution rather than go to prison, the judge listened to this family and allowed that treatment of the young boy, which is way beyond what most people could even consider. Are we seeing what God wants to do in our lives? He wants to... It says, the nations will know that I am the Lord because when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Now get this next, next verse, 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I have gave your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanliness. Does this sound like what we're talking about? Being in Christ and being a new creature? Is that We're talking about new creation here? In the Old Testament? Do you see it? So the question then, class, how do we become that new creature? 
how do we experience that new creation? How do we experience that regeneration, that renewing? In the text, who's doing the, the cleansing? Jesus. Who's doing the renewing? Who's doing the recreating? Who's taking the stone, heart of stone out and putting a heart of flesh in? Is it, is it something you have to work really hard for? Or is it something you have to experience in a trust relationship with Christ? Who does the work? So what's our job then? What's our part? Allow him. To trust the physician. But to allow him, our part, to trust our heavenly physician. His job is to recreate, to cleanse, to, to heal. Our job is to choose to follow the prescription. His job is to strengthen us to follow the prescription. We have to choose, don't we? Yeah. So what is it that interferes with our ability to do this? We see it, we want it, we desire it. What, why is it so hard then to experience? What, what's, what, is it, what are the obstacles that get in our way from experiencing this renewal, this regeneration, from trusting, from walking, from following the prescription that he would have for us? What is it that trips us up? Self. Self. Okay. And, and that's a general, very broad. Let's be specific. How, how does that manifest? We trust ourselves instead of him. If, and why do we trust ourselves? You said instead of? Because we think we can do it. We think we can do it or we really don't trust him to do it? Both. I think it's both. Because especially in America, we think, well, I, you know, I just get a job and I get all my bills paid. I just can do it all myself. So we trust in ourselves too much and we trust him too little. Mm-hmm. Now, what would cause us to trust him too little? Falsehoods. Say that louder? Falsehoods. Anybody care to share any things you've ever thought that actually caused you to not trust God? You thought it was true, and, it, and, and as you look back, it was like a barrier to your ability to trust him. Any thoughts? Anybody want to share? That he would burn you only as long as you needed. <laughs> okay, I remembered as growing up, I went to academy across the road there, over there, and I remember being taught in school. You know, if, if there's a sin left unconfessed on the books of heaven. Any, I see some people I went to school with in here nodding heads, yes. Uh, what's going to happen if there's a sin left unconfessed on those books? What's God going to do? You're toast. Yeah, you're going to toast. Uh, you're going you're to burn appropriate for that sin. Can you trust a God who would do that to you? No. No. That undermines trust. We have to understand the Bible in, in ways that are, that are truthful, not traditional. Mm-hmm. These are examples. How about this lie? We can't actually experience transformation and change here and now. I'm not saying that it's okay to have unconfessed sin in your life. Okay, we have to back up. Yeah, you need to clarify. Okay. <laughs> um, well, it really depends, doesn't it? See, there's this idea that if you don't confess every sin, if there's some sin that you have not confessed on the books of heaven and repented and, and asked forgiveness for, then you're going to be lost. <clears throat> There's this idea. Opinion stolen in third grade. Well, forgot about. Can't remember that one. Then you're. So suddenly, suddenly, our, our our salvation becomes dependent on our human memory to remember every sin we've ever committed, so we can be sure and confess it and ask forgiveness. And if our memory isn't very good, then we're in trouble. Plus, we're dwelling on. It our depends sins. on how you're going to define sin. Didn't you have a patient that really? Okay. Okay. Yes, I actually had a, I had a patient who uh, actually had a heart attack, and he told me about this. And in the ER, his heart stopped three times, 
and they defibrillated him three times. And he says he remembers being on the table in the air. He understood what was happening. He, he, every time uh, he would go out, he would come back, and he was aware of what was going on with him. And he said the only thought on his mind each time they revived him was, I hope there's not some sin I haven't confessed that will keep me out of heaven. Wow. Think that through. And so suddenly it's about our memory. But what, what you said, say, say what you said again. You have to be, think about how you're defining sin. How you're defining sin. So is sin or, or individual acts, which as many people think, it's the individual act that we have committed. I stole a pen in third grade and, and, I, and I never forgot about it. So let's take that example. Some of you have read my book. It's, Continue on and you are a thief. Well, see, that, that's the example of my book. That he steals a pen in third grade and he goes on to steal more and more and more. And then as a 20-year-old, he gets arrested convicted, sent to jail for, for stealing, and in prison, he actually experiences reformation. A, a, a preacher comes to the prison, and, and he repents, and he experiences a transformation of heart, and like David in the Bible, he has a new heart and a right spirit. He becomes a friend of God. From that point forward, he is loyal and faithful and honest in all of his dealings. He would rather pay extra on his taxes and do anything that could be even looked at as stealing or inappropriate. And then he uh, ends up before the, the eternal judge. And he never remembered about that pen. He also makes restitution what he remembers. Right, but he never remembered about that pen. So he never actually confessed the pen that he stole in first grade. Does the Lord say, you have been a faithful and true friend. You've been renewed in the inner man. You have a new heart and a right spirit, just like my friend David. But you forgot that pen. I can't let you in. That's not going to happen. No, it's not about remembering every detail. But it is about having a heart attitude that confesses the sinfulness of stealing. It's about being thievery. It's about being exactly. It's about being regenerated, being renewed, that you are repulsed at the idea of doing that. And if it did come to your memory, well, uh, would you hunt down that other person from 37 years ago and send him a pen? <laughs> there are times when it's appropriate to apologize for childhood misdeeds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there are times when it's appropriate, but there are times when it's not. Yeah. So anyway, does that answer that question? It's really confessing the evil in the heart that leads to the bad acts. It's really repenting of the evil in the heart that leads us to do bad things. And then if we have harmed someone, we, a specific act, we want to, if far as possible, restore and heal and make amends if we can. And uh, we'll just take another side and talk about David for a minute. When David, a lot of people who have this legal view that after you've committed a sin, you have to repent, which means turning away from and no longer engaging in. That's what they think it means, right? David, of course, sinned by having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah. And we all know he repented and, 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 and was reconciled to God and had a changed heart and right spirit and so forth. Um, did he turn away from Bathsheba? No. no. Well, wait a minute. He married her. Yeah, wait, 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 wait a minute. Shouldn't he have turned away from her if that was repentance? No. Because the principle is, as far as possible, we have to restore what we've taken. And what he took from her when he murdered Uriah in that society was, he took her reputation, he took her station, he took her standing, he took her means of support, he took her home, he took her property, because a widow in Israel owned nothing and would be on the street. She'd be a homeless street person of ill repute. The only way he could restore as much as possible what he had taken, because he didn't have the power to resurrect Uriah. Now, if he could have resurrected Uriah, that would have been the thing to do. But he couldn't do that. So the only thing he could do within his power was marry her. 
And in marrying her, he gives her name, station, position, property, means of support, and restores as far as possible everything he took from her. Now, legalists can't get their mind around that idea. Because a legalist would say he should have left her and turned away, turned his back on her, because, you know, he can't engage. But he had a loving relationship and had Solomon from that relationship. Because his heart was right. He wanted to restore and heal the damage that his sin had caused. All right. So, other things that impair us from experiencing this healing. Believing lies like, how about this one? Do people ever believe that we cannot experience a new heart and a right spirit here? That we actually can't experience transformation. We can't be renewed. We can't be changed here and now. Uh, we can experience forgiveness and pardon, but we don't get transformation until the second coming. It can't be perfect. Well, and, and so it comes out like this. Well, you know you're going to keep on sinning. I mean, you've been saved and you accepted Jesus, but don't expect to live, live a victory over sin. I mean, we're all going to sin, so just keep on sinning. Well, I see some uncomfortable looks. See, we can't be victorious. We can't live a victorious life. If you believe you cannot live a victorious life, what kind of life will you live? Can't serve two masters. Do we need to talk about that? Hmm. I see a lot of uncomfortable looks. And this is another reason a forensic legal model comes up. We can have security in a legal payment. And then we are freed from any burden to actually have to experience growth and health and transformation and regeneration. I don't need to feel bad as long as I make the legal confession. Well, somebody said that if we can go to heaven as sinners, then why can't Satan go to heaven as a sinner? What difference is there? In other words, at the end of time, if sinners are allowed into heaven, we're no different than Satan. Well, we need to clarify that. Unhealed sinners. Because there's going to be a lot of sinners who have been healed. Yeah. Without being transformed. Right. Into a new being, a new heart. That's right. That's right. So think of all the Bible metaphors. Jesus said, unless you are born again, that means something's changed inside you. You're not the same anymore. It's no longer I that live but Christ and all the things we've already gone through. Aren't they all talking about an actual transformation happening inside us here and now? Does the Bible teach that? They're all radical. They're not baby step by baby step. They're all radical metaphors. But does it teach a real change in us now? Yes. Have we, in our Christian tradition, moved away from actual change and regeneration to something else that leaves us short of that? Sometimes. But other things that, that make it hard on us is habits, ingrained patterns of acting and behaving which take time to change. And then when an old habit occurs... We believe a lie. I can't change. Why try? So I give an example to my patients. I'll tell them, and all of you in this room who actually still have your real teeth, have a habit pattern of how you brush your teeth. You start in your mouth in the same place, and you go through the same way every time. Isn't that true? It's a habit. You never think about it. You just do it. Now, if I instructed you, I want you to start on the opposite side and go through the mouth the opposite way from this point forward. Could, do you have the ability to do that? Could you choose to do that? Yes. yes. What's the likelihood you would never fall back to doing it the other way at all? Yeah. It's not going to happen. You have it all. So when you leave this place and go, okay, I'm going to start because I'm going to brush the opposite way from now on, and your spouse is talking to you, you've got the news on, something, and you start to brush your teeth, and what are you going to do? Start the old way. Are you then going to go, oh, I'm a loser. 
I can't change. I'm stupid. I can't figure things out. Why try? Just give up. Or are you going to go, hey, that's a habit. Let me go the other way. And in time, after correcting, the new way becomes a new habit, doesn't it? Well, this is true for our ingrained patterns of maladaptive behaviors of living and thinking and re reacting. Um, when we go to make change, the old habits don't go away instantly. And so what, when we have that insight, that awareness, that, that new vision about the new change we want to live, ah, oh, this is so exciting, we go this way from now, this is awesome. And then and a couple hours later you find yourself automatically doing some of the old stuff. The devil's there to trick you with a lie. You can't change. Why try? You're a loser. And people get discouraged and give up. You need to remember, wait a minute, no, that's part of the old habit. I, I am changing, and it just takes some time to change. And you're going to actually get this perspective in Romans chapter 7. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. When he says, the good that I want to do, I don't find myself doing. It's an old habit he's working on changing. It takes time. So why is it important, though, to, to realize that the plan of salvation is about renewal, about regeneration, about recreation, and not simple pardon and forgiveness? Why is that so important? Well, I have many people that come to see me as patients who have suffered under the burdens of sin. They have been overcome at some point in their life. They have made decisions for which they now look back on with remorse, regret, shame, and guilt. I bet nobody in here has ever experienced that. <laughs> Besides me. Well, what happens to the guilt, shame, and self-loathing when the person is renewed in heart and mind? When it's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. I'm a new creature, a new creation. What happens to that sense of self-loathing when you experience that? When, where's that guilt go when you've been changed and transformed? Where's that need to beat yourself up go when you have a renewed heart? When you realize and experience, hey, it's not me. I'm new. Through God's grace. Does it free you? We know the truth and it sets us free. Yes, we know the truth and it sets us free. This is why renewal and regeneration and recreation is so important. We will never be free from our guilt and shame if we don't experience a new heart and a right spirit. And then in the judgment, of course, the issue, of course, Satan gets these little ideas in our head. You know, have you ever heard, like in the judgment, you're going to stand face to face with the king, and, and there's going to be the record books, and the devil's going to be there, and he's going to be accusing you, and there's going to be all the sins you've committed on the books of heaven. And the traditional view goes something like this. When the devil accuses David of murdering Uriah and stealing Bathsheba, uh, Jesus pulls out the books of heaven and goes, okay, David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse, David. Oh, here we are. David, son of Jesse. Oh, I see the blood of Jesus has been applied to this record, and we've erased all record of sin. And we don't have any idea what you're talking about up here. The records of sin have been erased. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Is that what happens? Well, we all know the record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is. The, I mean, people get comfort in this idea that when you confess your sins, it's thrown as far as the east and the west and deep as the sea, and there's no remembrance of it. The sins of the, of the righteous go into judgment beforehand are wiped out of uh, memories and records, and people don't know. So that when we're talking and reading our Bibles, because David's sin has been confessed, it's gone beforehand into judgment, it's been erased from, from uh, the records of heaven. So when we're reading about it in our Bibles, our angels are going, what are they talking about? We've never heard of this guy. Does that make any sense to anybody? No, what actually happens in the judgment is that the devil makes his allegations. And Christ looks and says, regarding David, all the historical facts that you've recounted that occurred and transpired in David's life, they're historical facts. They don't change. They happened. But they're irrelevant. Because David has a new heart and a right spirit. He's been changed in the inner man. He's no longer sick of heart. He's not a sinner anymore. He has been transformed to be like me. He's my friend. Come on home. Amen. That's what happens. And so, you know, you're nominated 
to be a children's division leader, and uh, in the nominating committee discusses your worthiness, and a faithful member decides to disclose that when you were six, you had a bad viral gastroenteritis and had vomiting diarrhea all over your mother's new carpet and couch. What's the board going to do? <laughs> what? Why are you telling us this? Well, because it was gross and disgusting. And we don't want that to happen again. And we never want that to happen again. Yes. Okay, well, well, I understand. But are they sick today? Well, no, they're quite well. They're healthy. Well, then it's irrelevant. You see, the devil brings up all this stuff from our past, and it's gross and disgusting, stuff that's happened in the past. But that's not the question. The question is, are we sick in heart today? Are we been changed? Have we been healed? Have we been set right? Have we been renewed? That's the question. And if it is, then it doesn't matter. The past is irrelevant. So what is the remedy? What is our remedy? What heals us? What transforms us? Jesus. Literally. He came on this earth, walked where we walk, overcame where we couldn't overcame, and his victory becomes ours when we trust the Holy Spirit actually takes what Christ has accomplished and reproduces it in us. Um, this is out of a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 311. Because you know that metaphor about uh, being covered by the robe of righteousness? And sometimes it's, it's, it's presented as when the Father looks at us, he can't see our sin and wickedness because he only sees the robe of his Son covering us. And he gets the idea that we're just covered in a coating, but we're still rotten to the core. Listen to what it really means and and see about how we get this transforming power. It says, The robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. He actually did it. He achieved it through his step-by-step life. And this character he offers to impart to us. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sin. And in him is no sin. Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, the law is written in my heart. When on earth, he said to his disciples, I have kept my Father's commands. Then he says, by his perfect obedience, he made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, now get this, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then when the Lord looks at us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness. Why does the Father see righteousness, the robe of righteousness, when he looks at us? Because we are in Christ, as our text said today, and we are a new creature and the Hebrews 8 New Covenant text, 8.10, the law is written on the heart and mind. Our thoughts are brought in harmony with his. Our desires with his. We've been changed. We don't like the things of the world. We love the things of God. That's what it means. It's an actual regeneration. Yes. We continue to sin, though. Do we? Well, we commit acts of sin. Do we? <laughs> don't you? <laughs> you have sinful thoughts. You, you are still a sinful person. You have bilateral pneumonia, symptoms, fever, cough, chills. If you don't do anything, you're on the path that leads to death. It's a terminal condition. You're going to die. You go to the doctor, and he has a remedy that will cure you. And you trust your doctor. You take the prescription. As soon as you stake the antibiotics, first dose into your system, you've now left the path of death. You're on the path of life. Are you well that day? Has all the fevers and coughs and chills stopped that day? Has all the ugly crud that you were coughing up stopped coming up? Or as the antibiotics begin to work in your life, do you actually begin coughing up more crud? And as that crud comes up, do you go, hey, man, since I started this, I'm getting worse. I need to quit these antibiotics. 
I'm coughing up three times as much stuff now as I used to. See, when we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit begins working in our life, our consciences become more sensitized. Our discernment, our ability to see with spiritual discernment becomes more clear. And the wickedness and disease that was in us all along comes out more and more and more. Comes out more and more and more. Does that mean we're getting worse? Or does that mean it's coming up so we can take it to Christ and have victory and experience victory? So it's a journey. And as long as we're in that journey, it's not about the acts. It's about the transforming process that renews the heart that, that leads to the remission in time of those acts. I hear that and I understand it. And then I read texts like First John 3 where it says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And then... You know, he goes on to say that he who does what is right is righteous just as he is. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Okay. Do we believe that or not? Because God's seed remains in it. Do we believe that or not? I believe it. I think most Christians do not believe that. I believe it because I understand it this way. What is the law of God? Law of love. What is the root of sin? Selfishness. Selfishness. It's not about the acts. It's about the heart desire and motive to love others more than self. And ultimately, as we trust God, we have a regenerating process. We come to love others more than self. Fear and selfishness are removed. That doesn't mean we necessarily perform everything perfectly, that we have perfect performance. Look at Rahab. Good example from Scripture. Rahab, what, did, what is the act that she did that she's famous for, besides her, her livelihood? She lied. lied. She lied. But where do we find her in, in, in the New Testament? Faith Hall of Fame. In the Hall of Faith fame. What, what, what's that all about? Because in Rahab, she had a change of heart where she didn't want to live for herself anymore. She wanted to be on God's side and live for him and give herself, her industry, her resources, her home for his cause. Now... How mature was Rahab? How much did she actually know about God? How much has she been studying his word? She only, no. feared, she only feared him. Well, she recognized him as the true God, though. Yes. And she made a decision. Now, think this through, guys. Put yourself in her place. Today, this weekend, some spies from Al-Qaeda come knocking on your door. The FBI hot on their trail. What would it take for you to hide them and lie to the FBI? Uh. That's what she did. That's exactly what she did. Why would she do that? Because she believed, and it took an act of faith. She trusted God. She put herself out there. Now, we don't ever see God saying, well lied, Rahab. Good liar, man. Good job. But we do see God saying, I see the motive of your heart that you made a decision to put yourself on my side and do what you understood in your infancy to help this cause. I think it's important to recognize that God does not point out to me in a long list everything he's going to do in my life at one time. But he does point out something very specific and says, are you going to say yes or no to me? Yes. And, and, and my determination <clears throat> as a Christian is to always say yes to God. And he gives me what, I, what he has the power to change in my life. And it's not my whole life at one time. All, not every habit that I have is... One of the distractions of Satan 
that we have been duped into is focusing on behavior. That's his distraction. Acts of sin, bad deeds. The, the root where God wants to work is in the heart. And we have two motives, two. There's only two. There's two antagonistic principles in, in each of our hearts if you're a converted person. If you're not a converted person, you only have one. If you're converted, you have two motives vying for supremacy of your heart. Well, one is... Converted also have enmity. They always have... It's not vying, though. It's an external conviction of the Spirit bringing a conviction, but they haven't yet embraced it, so it's not at war in the heart yet. It's not part of who they are yet. Part of identity. Part of identity yet. Okay? It's only as we have converted that it becomes part of us that we have this internal war raging with self. And the two root motives are God's law of love, Loving others more than self. That's how we know what love is. That Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for others. Self-sacrificing. Giving ourselves. Rahab did that. Uh, the other principle is that survival of the fittest, fear, selfishness, watch out for number one, protect me. And it's the emotion of fear of what's going to happen to me. Fear of not getting ahead, fear of not getting the job, fear of what people think about me, fear of a failure, fear of abandonment, fear, 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 leads us to take all these actions to protect self at the expense of others. Give myself that you might live, kill you that I might live. These are the two roots in our hearts. Christ wants to eradicate the fear and selfishness and replace love in the heart. And thus you see examples. Moses at age 40 murders the overseers, looking out for number one. At age 80, he gives his life, offers his life to protect the other people. Saul of Tarsus, uh, prior to Damascus, can, uh, uses power, abuse, stoning, beating, survival of fittest principles to, to convert people back to Judaism. After Damascus Road, he writes in, in Corinthians, I'd gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live. In Revelation chapter 12, describing those who will be ready to meet Jesus when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That love for self, that fear of watching out for number one has been replaced with love. And this is where we go back to the thing about the sin then. Those who have come to that regenerating, renewing power may not behave perfectly in the idea they don't, like in Rahab's case where she was, she told a lie. But her heart was renewed so that she was loving others more than herself. She wasn't watching out for herself anymore. She put herself in harm's way for others. And as we grow in maturity, I believe Rahab, if she walked with God long enough, would have been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, willing to stand in the flames of fire rather than compromise her integrity. And that's where God is bringing all of us. So I think we can experience in that, that, that empowerment to love others, to overcome the fear in our own hearts that leads us to do the things. And then the acts of sin are simply the symptoms of the fear controlling rather than the love controlling. Does that make sense? Well, those are good questions. And so I believe that, there, that God is bringing a people, exactly what we read in the Ezekiel 36 text, at this time in Earth's history, he wants a people who will trust him enough to let him restore love in their hearts enough that they will love others enough that they will not look out to protect themselves anymore. Stop exploiting others. Give of themselves to help others. That's what I think he's wanting to do in our hearts. Okay. Does this mean when, we, when it's no longer I that live, that Christ lives in me, that we lose our individuality? That we are just puppets. We're robots. We're not, we're not our own people anymore. We, we lose our identity. No. We keep our individuality, our personality, but it's freed from the encumbrances of fear and selfishness. We're free to love others. We're free to stand for the right. We're free to give ourselves uh, for the good. We're free to stand up as our true selves, children of God. That's what happens when we surrender to him. We are freed from the encumbrances that have bound us. And look in your own lives. Look back at the history of your life. 
How much have you been bound by fear? I know I have. In the first paragraph, we're still on the first day's lesson. (laughs) Haven't even got out of our memory text yet. (laughs) Um, It says, the sacrifice of Christ provides all that we need for salvation. Absolutely true. Uh, It says, this includes the possibility of union and permanent attachment to him as our Savior and Lord. This incorporation into Christ through the ritual of baptism is our participation in his death and resurrection. It's our recognition that his death is our death because he died as our substitute. Interesting ways of expressing it. First off, Christ's sacrifice absolutely provided everything we need for salvation. No question about that statement. And as we talk about that aspect, we will study what Christ did for us at the cross for all eternity. We'll always be learning more. But at this point in time, what kind of things can we say we we understand right now that Christ accomplished for us at the cross? He unmasked the devil as a liar and a murderer. Okay. He revealed Satan's kingdom. So there's a revelatory aspect. What Christ did through his life, death, and resurrection, he revealed things. He revealed the truth about Satan as a liar and fraud. He revealed the truth about the Father as righteous and good. He revealed the truth about himself. He revealed the truth about God's use of power. You see, remember the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Did Christ have absolute power? John 13, all power was given to Christ. And he got on his knees and washed feet with that power. And then at the cross, with all power at his disposal, and men were beating him, abusing him, torturing him, did he use his power to stop and and impair and and, and hold back their liberty and freedom, or did he leave them free to torture him? You see, this is why, after the resurrection, the scene in Revelation in heaven, you hear, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have the power because he has proven beyond all shadow of doubt that he is not corrupted by it. He will never use his power to take away your freedom to choose. We can trust him with it. He's worthy. He revealed that at the cross. We revealed the truth about what God does to sinners. What did God do to the one who was made to be sin, who knew no sin? He burned him, right? Appropriate for his... No. He let him go. He gave him up. We reveal what God does. We, we, he reveals the truth about why death comes. Why does death come to the sinner who's unrepentant? Because God inflicts it? Or because it severs from the connection of the source of life? A truth about why the law cannot be broken. Why can the law not be broken? Why can the law of respiration not be broken? It's a law of life. If you decide to tie a plastic bag over your head and break the law of respiration... You can't live. You can only live in harmony with the law. The law of love is the law of life. You can only live in harmony with it. He also revealed that, at the cross, that outward obedience does not make us friends with God, and rituals don't heal. At this time in human history, was the first time in history that there was a group of people on earth that was following the script. They were doing all of the rituals that God, and they were doing it so fastidiously. They were Sabbath keepers, double tithe payers. Uh, they had a, had a health message and strained the gnats out of their food so they wouldn't eat the wrong foods. Um, they had a sanctuary message and, and observed. I mean, they did the rituals. They kept the script. They obeyed the law. And they still hated Christ and killed him. And the universe looks in, whoa! You can do all those things behaviorally and still be God's enemy. It was revealed at the cross. Behavioral conformity 
does not change the heart. Rituals lived don't transform the character. And then, so, part of what Christ did was reveal truth. The other part, he destroyed. He actually destroyed in his human nature the very foundation of sin and death. That fear and selfishness he overcame with love. Thus, the inevitable consequence for Jesus Christ was he rose again. The grave could not hold him because that infection of, of, of fear and selfishness that leads us to act in self-interest was destroyed when he gave himself freely. The law of life, the law of love, was perfectly rewritten back in, into the human God-man Jesus Christ by Jesus' own decisions with his human brain. Thus, the grave could not hold him. It was the inevitable evidence that he won the victory. So he destroyed the very foundation. And of course, you've got the Bible text for that, Hebrews 2.14. He took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, that Christ destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed the very elements that bring death. Rituals can't do this. In the notes, I go through the Isaiah text where it talks about all the rituals they were doing and how God berated them for the rituals because the rituals... They were doing meaninglessly without understanding the reasons behind it. And then he challenges us in 18, verse 18 of, of Isaiah 1, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Thinking through the problems, weighing out the evidence that all these rituals we do in Christianity, baptism, that's what we're talking about in that text, baptism, it said by this ritual of baptism is our participation in his death. Is it? Do we participate in Christ's death by a ritual? No. Or is the ritual the manifestation, the public declaration, the public statement that we have participated in as if we have died to self? Is it the ritual that participates? When a husband and wife put on rings, do the rings cause the participation, the sealing and the bonding of their hearts to one another? Or are the rings just merely a symbolic display that their hearts are bound to one another? So... If you've read the text in Romans 6.1, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we go on and live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, now what is this talking about? If you understand church history, anybody know where the word baptism came from? Or baptized? It's the Greek word baptismo. And in 1611, when they're translating the, uh, the Bible into English, King James was sprinkled. King, uh, the, the translators were afraid they'd be headed if they actually said immersed. The word baptismo means immersion. And if you were to go to, in, in Greek and you say, hey, we need to, to, to wash those dishes, and we have an instruction manual on how to wash the dishes after, after we eat, we say, well, you take the dishes and you baptismo them. You immerse them in the water. But they didn't want that because they were afraid they would be beheaded, so they just made a transliteration and said, we'll make a new word, baptism. John was baptizing people. Well, he's immersing. And so what are we to be immersed in? What is true baptism into Jesus Christ? It is our souls, our characters, our minds, our hearts immersed into the truth about God, into the character of Christ, into the love and methods and principles of God. We are immersed in heart. That's the immersion, internal immersion. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit, immersed in Christ Jesus. And then we take that public display and show that we have died to the old man and we're resurrected into a new life. But the ritual doesn't do anything other than make a public statement. Does it? No. And so my paraphrase of that text goes, What then? 
should we say about this amazing healing plan? Should we spread the infection of distrust and selfishness, cause more devastation and destruction so that the power of God's healing solution may be fully, more fully displayed? Absolutely not. We have taken the antidote, and the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness has been purged from our hearts and minds. How then can we choose to be reinfected with distrust of God and practice selfish methods again? Or don't you realize that all of us who are immersed into the truth of Christ Jesus have a, were immersed into selflessness and have died to self-centeredness? We symbolically demonstrate we have joined him in dying to self by being buried in water in order that just as Jesus arose from the dead displaying the life-giving glory of the Father, we too live a new life displaying God's glorious character in our lives. Okay. Sunday's lesson, it talks about the two humanities, and uh, the humanity we got from Adam in the garden, and the humanity we get from Christ. If you were to break them down to their root elements, how would you describe basically the difference between the two? What humanity do we get from Adam, and what humanity do we get from Christ? Sinful as opposed to sinless. Sinful as opposed to sinless. Okay, that's good. Others? Selfish as opposed to selfless. Selfish as opposed to selfless. Okay, and what is the consequence to having a inherited selfish or sinful nature, where does that lead? Death. So could we say that we inherited from Adam a terminal nature, a nature that is terminal? Mortal man. And we inherit from Christ then? Eternal. Eternal nature. At its root element, when we are born into Adam, we're born dying. We're dead. We're with the terminal condition. But when we accept Christ, we have a new humanity, which is eternal in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the two differences in the, in the lesson, number six says the difference is that Adam in the Garden of Eden brought condemnation and Jesus brought justification. Those are the two differences. Now, does that sound fairly legal? We're condemned and we're justified. And this, is, this text it quotes here, uh, Romans 5.18, is, is often a text that people hear as a legal process and they use to support the legal view. But let's look at that text. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. That kind of sounds legal, doesn't it? But this is what happens. People don't read the next verse. Paul goes on to define, explain. Now let's read verse 19 of chapter 5. And look, notice what it says. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners... So also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, does that sound legal? Or does that sound constitutional? In other words, in our constitution, in our very being, in our nature, something transformed, something happened to us. When Adam sinned, we were made something different than we used to be. Something happened, we were transformed. Is that legal? That's not legal anymore. And when Christ obeyed, many will be made or transformed or renewed. It's no longer legal. If we actually just let the Bible, we read it, the legal stuff disappears. So then what would be the cause of the condemnation? If we understand that when Adam said we were made or constituted differently, we were no longer constituted righteous, our condition, what would be the reason we'd be condemned? Where does that condemnation arise or come from? It's a consequence of being terminal. Our condition. Yeah. Our condition condemns us. Our condition is, is terminal. That's where the, so we are con- condemned. An HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman, have a child born HIV-infected. What did the kid do wrong? Nothing. But he's terminal. That's us. 
That's what it's saying. Because of Adam, we're born in a condition. It's terminal. Didn't do anything wrong. Christ came, cured the condition, and offers a remedy for all who accept it. Yet Christianity has come up with the idea that that child deserves death because he was born sinful. He's deserving of death. Yes, yes, that's often taught. That is often taught. Instead of saying it's just a consequence of the way he was born and he's in need of healing. And the Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, talking about, if you, in the paragraph, in the, in the lesson, talks about the fall of Adam and talks about spiritual death. And I was going to ask the question, we're going to discuss the idea of what is spiritual death versus physical death. What do you understand spiritual death to be? And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As you know, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were yet dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. How do you understand this idea then? Born in this terminal state, dead in transgressions, dead in trespasses and sins. Would a kid being born HIV positive be dead in his condition, even though he's physically still alive? Can you be dead spiritually, but alive physically? How, how does that work? Well, what is dead spiritually? My understanding of dead spiritually is we are severed from God's eternal source of life, severed from the law of love, severed from our connection with him. Physiology may continue for a while, but it's inevitable what's going to happen if we're not reconnected. We can give some examples from nature. You could uh, take some weights and tie them on your legs and jump off the side of a ship into the ocean. And you've just severed yourself from your source of life, air. Now, you're not instantly dead, but you're dead. And it takes a while before the consequences reach, but you have severed yourself. We can make those choices. Sin is a severing of ourselves from God. Severing from that source of life, from the law that, uh, of love. And, and this was demonstrated to us in the Old Testament sacrificial system. When they confessed sins on the head of the lamb, they cut the lamb's throat, the circulation, the life's in blood, it circles, so the circle of life was broken. Did the lamb die instantly? Or did it heart keep beating, pumping out that blood for a while before it died? Okay, that, once the throat was cut, once the circle of life was cut, the lamb was dead, even though it was still alive unless some intervention came. A vascular surgeon jumped on the scene and quickly sutured back those that severed artery and, and fixed it to save the lamb's life. Okay, we, as a race, have been severed from the source of life. God intervened emergently. And, of course, the lamb in the Old Testament circumstance or, or situation was, was Christ, and he had his connection severed at the cross, and then the blood represents, the life is in the blood, the life of Christ. What happens? He shares his life. His life which is perfect. His life which is sinless. His life, the blood gets taken throughout the sanctuary. Symbolizing that when we are connected to him, his life becomes our life. Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. It cleanses, it renews, it heals, it purifies the spirit temple. The sanctuary is cleansed. Too metaphorical? Too symbolic? Do we grasp that concept? So it's no longer I again. We're back to our very first text. We're new. Not through anything we've done, but by internalization of Christ, becoming one with him, being in him. 
Any closing comments or thoughts? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have been working with our dark and, and blinded minds so long, that you have been so patient, that you've given us so many evidences. We ask for your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, allow us to comprehend, allow us to see, allow us to experience and open the heart and trust to you to experience the, the outpouring of your Spirit who will take all that Christ has achieved, write it on our hearts, Remove the heart of stone. Give us a tender heart. Give us a passion to love others as you love. That we can lose sight of self. That fear can be overwritten with your, with your love, with your goodness. And that we can give of ourselves to others and live a victorious life. And that we can experience the transforming power that the old habits, the old conditioned responses and behaviors may be overwritten in time. And that we can live victorious here and now, shining for you. As we look to see you again soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.